Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 35, and then we'll jump to 44 through 49. Long text, great text. This is our Vintage Jesus series, The Jesus Most People Miss. How did he see Scripture? That's the question we're answering this morning. No one is more hated or loved than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the prejudices, the biases, the deception that's in our culture today, when, they look, when you look beyond all of that and encounter the historical person and work of the real Jesus Christ, you are never, ever the same. Never, ever the same. Christians believe the Bible is God's word because Jesus believed it. And he didn't just simply believe the Bible in some general way. He was passionate about it, and his life was saturated with it. And if you believe he is who he said he is, God in the flesh, we talked about the incarnation last weekend, if you believe that he is who he said he is, then you will accept the entire Bible as God's word as he does. We can't take on his lordship and not have the same heart for Scripture that Jesus had. If you're, if you're following him, you say that you're a Christian, you're going to have the same passion for his word as Jesus did. So, so I could summarize it like this. I believe in the Bible because I believe in Jesus, and I believe in Jesus because I believe in the Bible. Now, immediately you're going to say, wait, 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 that's, that's circular reasoning. That's circular reasoning. Yeah, it is. It is, and so... If you're like me, because that's how I would challenge that, I would say, well, that doesn't, you can't do that. You can't go back and forth. So first of all, what you've got to do is you've got to look to see, and you can see the notes, how do we know that the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable? We must first start with seeing if the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable. Now, people like myself, I needed this. People like my wife, she didn't need this. It was self-authenticating for her. As she began to read the scriptures and encounter the Jesus of the Bible, she just knew this is, this is God's son. It's a little bit like what, C.S., uh, like what C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That was my wife's experience. For me, I needed to know that there was evidence. It was historical. It was factual. And so you can see how we're looking at the notes here this morning. How do we know that the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable? That's where we'll start. That's the foundation. And then out of that, then we can trust, because a lot of people, their argument would be, yeah, we don't believe that Jesus actually said those things. Those accounts aren't really reliable. They're legend. We're going to disprove that but through this first point. But then the second point, so if they are indeed reliable and Jesus is who he said he is, then how did Jesus see the Scripture? And then we will end by talking about how can we have a heart for Scripture like Jesus. And uh, so that's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer. And then we will look at our text and unpack these notes. Father God, in this changing world, we have your unchanging word. And as your Son, our Savior, taught in Matthew 7, whoever hears your words and does them is like a person who builds his house on the rock and when the storms rage, the house is unshaken. Help us to see, according to Psalm 19, that your word is perfect, reviving the soul. And your word is sure, making wise the simple. And your word is right, rejoicing the heart. This is what I would ask all of us here this morning. Just take a moment right now and ask God to speak to you through his word as we study his word this morning. Just take a moment. Just you and God, just ask him, God, God, speak to me through your word. And now ask him to speak through me. Pray for me. I need all the help I can get. And so, Father, may, may we not just believe the Bible in some general way, but may we be passionate about it and saturate our lives with it as we follow our Savior, Jesus, who knew it intimately, loved it deeply, and validated it supremely. For your glory, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, 
Amen. Take a look at this text. Wonderful text. It's a long text. I think it uh, kind of explains itself, so let's dive into it, and you will see it's a wonderful story. On the road to Emmaus, verse 13, chapter 24 of Luke, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. You're going to see what things have happened. This is uh, post uh, crucifixion and also resurrection. They just they don't know that the resurrection has happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, there's a number of reasons why our eyes are kept from recognizing uh, Christ, uh, much of which is self-imposed, and uh, and it's sometimes we have a stubborn heart, we have a shallow heart. Or we have a strangled heart, and so we really have to look at, the, at our heart condition. And so their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, this is Jesus, was this conversation, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. Now, now take note of this next verse, verse 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So these, these guys are disappointed. They're uh, they're, they're really almost in that verge of despair. They had put all their hope in the fact that this is the Messiah. He's come to rescue us. And so little did they know, the disciples, when they stood at the foot of the cross and watched their Savior being crucified, little did they know that they were watching the greatest, the greatest accomplishment in history, their own salvation and the salvation of mankind. They didn't realize that. And, uh, and oftentimes when we look at the events of our lives, we're despondent, we're dejected, we're disappointed, we're going, oh my goodness, all my hopes and dreams dashed to the ground. That's where these guys are. And uh, I'm sure that you felt that, that way. Maybe you feel that way this morning. And I'm, I want to say that uh, you're in a good place uh, to encounter your Savior because that's what they do. They encounter Christ through the Scriptures. They encounter Christ and the Scriptures and through the scriptures, and it's, it's really quite wonderful. And, um, and so, as they continue on, and, and how, verse 21, let me continue reading verse 21. It is now the third day since these things have happened. So let me reread verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. It's almost like, ah, uh, if anything was going to happen, it would have already happened. It's now the third day. That's almost kind of, and oftentimes things go beyond that point of no return in our lives and we just, we're, we're disillusioned by life. Wow, we had put all of our hope in something and it, it has let us down. And then moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they, have, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now this is Jesus. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart. So there's that, that heart condition. Oftentimes it's, a, it's very self-imposed that we don't see what God is up to. We're, we're dull of heart and uh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Old Testament, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now check this out, big, big verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So that pretty much makes up the whole Old Testament. Moses and then the prophets. Moses, it starts with Moses, ends with the prophets, everything in between. So in be And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he gives them a Bible study in the Old Testament and says, hey, this, this is all about me. 
And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, check this out, this is really good. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and guess what happens? And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Woo! That just sent a chill up my back. I mean, as I'm reading that, it's like, whoa, that's good. That's awesome. They're just like, this is Jesus. You know, you have those moments where you're just despondent, and you're in despair, you're studying God's word, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's there. He's with me. He loves me. He's for me. He's not against me. Oh, yeah. That's, what's, that's what happened. They, just, they had this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ through the study of the Word because he's explaining to them uh, the Old Testament about how it's all about him. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Man, I can't even read this without, without crying. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's just powerful. We study God's word. It's just not something we just go through the motions. We have an encounter with the living Savior through the study of his word. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven... So you got the 11, 11 apostles, 11 disciples, and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he has spoken to them, how, how he was, I'm sorry, and told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now jump to verse 44. So then Jesus appears to the disciples and then this is what he says to them, part of what he says to them. Then he said to them, this is Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you. So this is his kind of last commissioning to his disciples and followers. And he says, uh, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So now he just, he, he puts the Psalms in there, which is, he basically, it's everything from Moses to the prophets, everything in between, Psalms included. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Boy, that's important. You can study the scriptures, and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, open your mind to understand the scriptures. You're not going to make heads or tails out of it. And said to them, thus it is written. Now, he's going to give us the gospel. Here's the gospel. This is what the Bible is all about. Very clear. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he came and he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. So he died for us. Uh, building that bridge that separated us from the Father. It's our sin that separates us, and he built a bridge across the chasm of sin. Now, verse 47, and that repentance, so this is the result of what Christ has done, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that repentance, that's just a, a changed life, uh, we turn from sin towards our Savior, and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Notice that word there, proclaimed. So this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Everything else is good advice. This is good news. Good news is meant to be proclaimed. So week in and week out, we proclaim it is finished. You have access to all of his presence and promises. It's a done deal. Live in the reality of what we have in Jesus Christ. That's why he says it's proclaimed. Do you hear me? This is yours for the taking, for the asking, for the receiving. All the resources of heaven, that's that idea of that word, proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's the same word, witness, martyr, is found in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, literally martyrs. You will give your life for this. 
That's how much it will grip your life. So you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, we got a lot of work to do, huh? I mean, that's a fabulous text. So let's talk about this. How do we know the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable? We just read a biblical account. How do we know that that was reliable? Because that's the argument oftentimes people will, will give. And so I use a, an acrostic here, and I teach this in the game of life, so you have to come to the game of life to really understand this more clearly. But let me knock this out really quickly. We know that the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable because, per, first of all, it's prophetically powerful. That's the P in the preach, P-R-E-A-C-H, prophetically powerful. We see that in verses 25 through 27 and then verse 44 that we just read. Was he not saying, hey, all of that Old Testament, I'm the fulfillment of that. That was, that was prophecy. They were predictions about me, and I've, I'm here. I have fulfilled that. So there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over a period of about 1,500 years. And what's phenomenal about all of these books is that there is this one common, unified theme. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Old Testament predicts God's rescuer, and the New Testament presents God's rescuer. Let me ask you this. What would be the odds of, uh, of me picking the lottery numbers uh, five times in a row? Not for the little wimpy one that we have in the, in the state, but the big one, the big mega one. I don't even know what it's called, but what would, what would be the odds of that? How many would think that if I did that, they would probably arrest me? Yeah, they, they would say, hey, something's going on here, even if you did two or three. But if I were to pick five in a row, what would you guys think of those odds? That would be astounding. Well, you need to know this, that even greater odds are presented in Bible prophecy, and Jesus came and fulfilled. Turn to the person next to you and see if they even have an idea of how many Bible prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Take a wild guess real quick. Okay, what are you guys thinking? You guys thinking maybe, uh, yell it out to me. What do you think? All of them. How many are thinking all of them? Yeah, how many are all of them? Uh, close to 300. 300 Bible prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Do you think God wants us to know that this is the Messiah? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Prophetically, Powerful, remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence. Oftentimes people will say, what's well, been passed on from generation to generation? It's lost its intended meaning, and therefore I had someone on the fire department say that to me one time, and I said, when did you come to that conclusion? Was that after you, you compared our modern-day translations with our manuscript evidence? And they go, manuscript what? Yeah, evidence. There's manuscript evidence. In fact, uh, some of the most powerful was the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls found in 1947. So there's manuscript evidence that validates our scriptures. 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. Established by eyewitness accounts. Did you notice in verse 48? You are witnesses of these things, literally martyrs. The argument against this reliability is that it's a legend. And that's what people will say, oh, that's all legend. He didn't actually say that he was God and he actually didn't do all those things, that's just legend. Here's uh, my answer to that. Uh, and that is the timing is too early for it to be legend because these writings were written anywhere from 15 to 30 years later. Uh, legends uh, are written hundreds of years later. These were written within 15 to 30 years later. Now, a lot of times, uh, I mean, I've been married for 37 years, 37, yeah, I think somewhere around there, but uh, I can't even remember the date, but I can remember that day Believe me. And I can remember a lot of great details of that day. So 30 years is nothing. So anywhere from 15 to 30, in fact, the Apostle Paul wrote his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he even talked about the resurrection of Christ, and he said, there's some 500 people that were eyewitnesses of this. You can go and talk to them. So it's not legend, and we also know that it's not legend because the content is too counterproductive. For instance, it says that the first eyewitnesses were Who? Women, you gotta be kidding. They're not credible. I mean, in those days they weren't. Women could not uh, give testimony in a court of law. Isn't that crazy? 
And I don't know why we ever let them start voting either. <laughs> I'm kidding. I should have never said that, but hey. Okay, none of, none of the women here rush the stage right now. Where's the security? Please forgive me. I'm joking, but that's what that, that culture, so it's counterproductive because they would have never had, if women, women were the first to witness it, therefore they wrote it down, regardless of the fact that it was countercultural. It didn't matter, so that would, that would go against even legend. By the way, Jesus looked like he was pretty desperate in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's bleeding, when he's sweating drops of blood. That doesn't look too positive for our rescuer. And yet that's all part of the historical account. It was because he was taking on the sin of the world. And then another reason why it's not legend is uh, the literary form is too detailed for legend. The Bible goes into a lot of detail. C.S. Lewis, who was a literary expert, he said that they didn't have this kind of uh, uh, writings, uh, you know, in, they didn't have legend in those days. They had actual historical accounts. This is history, is what he's saying. He said and he was a literary expert, and he goes into it in quite in detail. And by the way, he was an, an agnostic. He was an atheist that didn't want to believe it. The more he did the research on it, he realized, wow, this is for real. And then the next one is that it's archaeologically accurate. Uh, NIV uh, Archaeological Study Bible documents a lot of these discoveries. I mean, so it makes sense that if, it's, if it mentions in the Bible, it talks about uh, people, things, and circumstances, then through archaeological digs, you're going to find artifacts that validate the Scriptures. And absolutely, that, that's what has happened through the years, uh, through the centuries, that there has never been an artifact uncovered that has invalidated the scripture. By the way, you need to know that the Book of Mormon mentions uh, quite, uh, uh, you know, a civilization, a people, things, and circumstances, and there has never, ever been anything unearthed uh, through archaeological digs to validate the Book of Mormon. Nothing, absolutely nothing, which I believe because it's fictitious. It's, he made it up. Joseph Smith is a false prophet. And, uh, and so that's another piece of evidence. Credited by millions of changed lives. We see that through verses 46 through 47. They become martyrs. They, they give their life. I mean, hey, people die for what they believe to be true today. We see this over in the Middle East. But no one will die for a lie. And the argument oftentimes is, oh, these guys made this up. His resurrection, they just made that up. Then, then they all died for something that they made up? That's not, people aren't going to do that. People don't die for a lie. People will die for what they believe to be true, but they won't die for a lie. All of the disciples, except for Judas, they all died deaths of martyrdom. So it's pretty fascinating. Eyewitness credited by millions of, of changed lives. Uh, part of that eyewitness account, uh, their lives were transformed. You read the book of Acts, even to this day, people's lives are continuing to be changed. Honored by outside historians, Josephus, I got him there. These are non-Christians, Suetonius, and so we could, we could continue to build this case. Plenty of evidence. It's scientifically sound. It's wisdom that works. And then also, it fits the criteria of the canonization, which is the measuring rod. There's certain questions that we're asked in regards to it, and you can look this up by going on to gotquestions.org and just add, type in canon, Canada Scripture will give you the questions that were asked in regards to it. So it's pretty fascinating. So prophetically powerful, remarkably reliable, established by eyewitness accounts, archaeologically accurate, credited by millions of changed lives, and honored by outside historians. That's, uh, and much more evidence on top of that. That's how we know that the biblical accounts of Jesus are reliable. So now let's look at the accounts. How did Jesus see the Scripture? He saw the, saw the Scripture as supernatural revelation. John 5, 37 through 39 I think it's on your notes there is verse 39, but let me kind of give you the context. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and just basically saying, hey, God speaks. God reveals himself, and he reveals himself to us through Scripture, and then he says in verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, and then verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do you hear what he's saying? There's a way of reading the Bible that is detrimental to you. These guys, these Pharisees, diligently studied the Scriptures, thinking they were going to find life. And yet Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. 
They talk about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to find life. So it is possible to diligently study God's word and still miss the big E on the eye chart, Jesus. And, uh, and we know that. There's churches that teach the Bible here in the valley that they're missing the big E on the eye chart. Um, they're, not, they're not helping you to encounter the Christ of the scriptures. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but they've turned it into more of a book of moralism. Aesop's fables. Hey, come on, come on, kids. Let's be good people, as opposed to encountering the God, the God of the Bible. And so it's possible to actually read the scriptures and it be de- detrimental to you. Um, you can actually read the Bible and get worse. 1 Corinthians 8.1, the Apostle Paul says, knowledge does what? It puffs up, but love builds up. So here's, here's what you should be doing. So the more you read the scriptures, the more you are fascinated by the God of the scriptures, the more you're captivated by him, the more your love for him just grows and grows. And then as you're absorbing more of that love, then you're, you become more of a loving person. So if you're not growing in your love for God and love for others, then you're reading the scriptures wrong. So don't stop reading them, just start reading them right. I mean, start reading them to encounter the Christ of the Scriptures. And so let me kind of help you to do that. This is what this study is about, is to kind of help you. And we do it it week in and week out. And so this is what Jesus is saying, that supernatural revelation, God speaks. It's also inspired in every single part. That's what he also says. Matthew 5, 17 through 19, this is Sermon on the Mount. He says, do you not not think that I have come to abolish the, the law or the prophets? Do you think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, I actually know people out there that are Christians that just totally ignore the Old Testament. They say, oh, we're not under the law anymore, so we don't even have to follow the law. Huh? So what, we just kind of discard the whole Bible? And this is Jesus said, I came to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he came to accomplish it. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. But he says this, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's the problem is, is that we don't obey God's word, the law, to get his blessing, we have his blessing, therefore we obey him. So you can't reverse that, it becomes religion. But yeah, we obey the, the God's word, of course we do. We live according to it, but here's the difference, is that because we have his blessing, he empowers us to begin to live according to God's word. Don't flip that, don't flip it the other way. Don't obey him to get his blessing, you already have all of his blessing, it's to be proclaimed, it is finished. So out of that empowering presence of God in your life, then live according to God's word. You live a life for his glory, that's what you were created for, out of a love, out of a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ and what he's accomplished. How do you do that? What does it look like? God's word, the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So, So as you study God's word, you're gonna begin to see more clearly how to love God and how to love people. But it's out of the empowering presence of God, enabling you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. And and so he saw that every part of it, every every part of it was was inspired. It's the breath of God. Supernatural revelation inspired in every single part. And then authoritative and unbreakable. I won't read the whole text here. You can read it on your own through your growing notes, but Mark 7, 1 through 13, and he, Jesus, said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then verse 13, thus making void the word of God, so you're ignoring the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So we tend to, in our culture, we tend to make tradition as more important than God's word. He's saying, no, it's, it's authoritative. In fact, in John 10, 35, he says that scripture is, cannot be broken. What that tells us is that you, you don't actually break God's laws, you break yourself against his laws. So when he's established uh, his laws in, in his word, it's out of his love and wisdom uh, because uh, knowing how he created us, knowing our, our weaknesses and strengths, he knows what's best for us. He's saying, hey, this is the best way to live. 
This is the best way to do life. This is the best way to live out your life, and you do this out of a heart that's captivated by my love for you. And uh, I heard, uh, it was Keller that said this, if there are... If there are real moral absolutes and we don't care to know them, it's like closing our eyes while, while driving. So what he's saying is that these are moral absolutes. This is the way that life works and this is the best way that life works. And uh, don't follow your tradition to the exclusion of my word. My word is authority and it's important. By the way, I come in contact with people that aren't believers a lot. And I'll hear them say statements like, hey, we need to do a better job of taking care of the planet. And so my question for them is like, why? Why would we want to take better care of the planet? Well, we just need to because we want to pass it on to the next generation. So why? Why do you want to pass it on to the next generation? So then they can pass it on to the next generation. Why? Why? Why do we want to do a better job with taking care of this, being a little more responsible? Why do we want to treat people with kindness? Why? You can't say something is crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. So where's your straight edge? You just coming up with this on your own? Where's your straight edge? Well, it's, just, it's really good for people. Why is that so good for people? Who says it's good for people? What's the basis of your belief? You have a belief system. Even if you're an atheist, you have a belief system. See, atheists are counting on the fact that there is no God and they'll never have to stand before God and give an account of their lives. That every, everything's over. When it's over, when I die, I go off into oblivion. So who gives a rip about what's in between that? Does it really matter if that's true? All of, you know, at some point in the history, you know, of mankind, this is all going to be over, according to many atheists. It's just going to disintegrate. Boom, gone like it never existed. Well, let's just end it now. What difference does it make? Isn't that crazy? I mean, so, so I don't think people have thought deep enough. Yeah, we need to have a better world and a nicer, we need to be nicer and all that. What, 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 what's the basis of your belief? You have a belief system whether you're a follower of Christ or not because that's how we function. So what's the basis of your belief? What's the foundation of your faith? What's the credibility of your creed? You have a creed. You do. You see, as believers, we do. We know we're here by divine design. We have a purpose in our life. Why would we want to take care of this planet? Because God has given this to us, and we want to pass it on to the next generation. Yes, to honor God, to give glory to God, because the Bible tells us this is the foundation of our lives. This is the credibility of our creed. It's God's word. He spoke to us. We live for him and we live for his glory. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? So don't come off with this all being nice person and saying we need to be nice to one another. Why? It doesn't, what's the basis? And we, and we live in a society today that we kind of pick and choose. By the way, you know, when I said you can't call something crooked unless there's a straight edge somewhere, have you noticed in our culture we're moving the straight edge and we're making it up as we go? And we're certainly not going back to what the scripture teaches and you're seeing that happen all the time. More and more and more. We're becoming more and more immoral as a, as a culture and as a society because we're moving the straight edge. We're making up our own straight edge. And then you start questioning people, where did you get that? Well, it's just what I want to do. That's crazy. And so God, Jesus made it very clear. It's authoritative. It's unbreakable. It's sufficient for salvation. Luke 16, 15 through 31, the story of Jesus this is the story by Jesus of the rich man and Lazarus. How many are familiar with the rich man and Lazarus story? And these two guys die, and where does the rich man go? Hades. He goes to hell. And the Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, which is known as paradise. And it's interesting. They have some sort of dialogue. The, the rich man has some sort of dialogue with Abraham, and he pleads with Abraham because he's in torment, as he's in Hades in hell. And he says, please, if someone would rise from the dead and go to my five brothers, I know they would convert. I know that they would become Christians and they would not come to this place of torment. Now listen to what Abraham says in verse 31 of Luke chapter 16. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I've often heard people say, if something supernatural could happen to their life, and, and the Bible says, no, they've got, they've got plenty of evidence. Moses and the prophets, 
God wrote it down. It's in his word. He speaks to us through his word. We see that also, I put this down on your notes, Jesus was saturated with scripture, faced every major betrayal, every major crisis in his life by apprehending and quoting the scripture, his temptation in Matthew 4, his betrayal in Matthew 26, and his death on the cross in Matthew 27, and then in John 19. And then he also showed us that it's being all about himself. So, so how did Jesus see the scripture? Supernatural revelation, inspired in every single part, authoritative and unbreakable, sufficient for salvation, everything we need for life and godliness, and then being all about himself, we made, he made that very clear. Luke 24, 44, and then Luke 24, 46 through 47, really giving us basically the gospel message. And so it's really important that as you study the Bible, that when you study it, you, you can study it from two different mindsets, and it's really important uh, to have the, the right mindset. Turn to the person next to you and see if they have the right mindset. Is the Bible a book primarily about me, man's search for God, or primarily about God, God's search for man? Turn the person next to you and ask them that real quick. Okay, you guys, if you've been with me long enough, you guys know the answer to that, don't you? What is it? Yell it out to me. Yes, God's search for man. Isn't that going to make a difference in how you read the Bible when you open up the book? So if you read it as man's search for God, it's going to be about what you do. I've got to do these things, but it's more about what has been done, done for us. And uh, otherwise, we turn it into, like I said, like an Aesop's fables. It becomes moralism. Try harder. Do more. And uh, that's not what the Bible is about. And in fact, you could summarize the Bible like this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, fall, Genesis 3, and then Genesis 4 all the way to the end of the book, Revelation, is redemption, and then the book of Revelation is restoration, new heaven and new earth. It's all, it's all about Jesus, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite books, the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids. I'm a big kid. Every story whispers his name. Listen to what uh, Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones says. I love the way she writes it here. I think I'm going to read from this on Christmas Eve this year because it's just really a wonderful book. We're going to do a couple family services, but it's just, it's a great book. Listen to what she says. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby, and every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I love it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about how he came, he came to rescue us. And we have everything we need in him. I love it. So how do we, how do we bridge the gap between our, our beliefs and our behavior? Because that's where our problem is. How can we have that satisfying, liberating presence and promises of God not just be clear to our mind but real to our heart, because that's the goal of Bible study, that's the goal of, of church and personal devotions and prayer, is so that we can have that satisfying and liberating experience of the presence and the promises of God real to our hearts. How can we have a heart for Scripture like Jesus? Pray that God will open your heart, your eyes, and increase your love for His Son. Always begin with prayer. 
God, open my eyes. Increase my love for your son. Verse 17. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And their eyes were open, verse 31 of our text, and their eyes were open and they recognized him. And when, they, and when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, God loves to make his son known. I, uh, let me read to you a quote from a, a theologian that I was listening to this last week, and I, I kind of somewhat wrote this down and paraphrased it a bit. But listen to what... I wrote down here, if you don't desire the greatest treasure in the universe, which is Christ Jesus, then reading your Bible is going to be boring. If you don't desire to know Jesus, walk with Jesus, experience Jesus, then the Bible isn't going to seem very relevant to your life. If your desire is to love him, treasure him, live for him more than anything, and to bring as many people into the experience that you can, then you won't be able to live without the Bible. If you can go a few days without ever picking up the Bible, then something is wrong. He's not your greatest treasure, therefore he's not your greatest pleasure. My, my sister, uh, Aloha, was telling me, uh, uh, she overheard a conversation here recently. It was two gals that go to really, really big churches here in the valley, mega churches in the valley, and one said, we're gonna have to find another church because their worship is too long. And the other one said, oh, you'll have to come to our church. This, the second one goes to the biggest church in the valley. And, um, and she said, well, you have to come to our church because, because that's what I like about it. They get us in and they get us out. And I started thinking, when did we start checking the church box as some sort of a list of things that we do rather than it being an encounter with the living God? And that's what we do. It's like, oh, I, just, I want something short, easy, light. Get me in, get me out. I got things to do. What? More important than encountering God? I, uh, I, I mean, it just, it blows my mind away. And, and that's why, you know, uh, that's why on Sunday mornings, and you've heard me say this before, this isn't a lecture to where you walk away with information. And you're going to walk away with information, no doubt. This isn't a motivational talk where you walk away with action steps. This is a sermon so that when you walk away, you walk away worshiping God. That there's something while you're sitting out there that your heart is stirred into greater awe and intimacy with the living God. I mean, that's, that's my heart. That's my heart more than, than anything. Um, and that's what I want to happen when we get together. The, the scriptures are meant to redirect our wandering hearts to their true destination and most satisfying delight, our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what I want. When people ask you about Desert Breeze, I don't want to, I hope that you don't say this. Oh, their music is great. We have great music. There's no doubt about it. Or you say, oh, great teaching. I don't know about that, but, uh, but I hope that we do. I hope we study God's word, but I don't want you to say that. Great music, great teaching, or great coffee. I don't even want you to say that. <laughs> this is what I want you to do. What a great God. What a great God. They helped me encounter the living God. My life has never been the same. I can't wait to get together with my friends and family as we celebrate the goodness of God. And so pray that God will open your eyes and increase your love for his son. The next one is remember, Bible study is hard work, but it is infinitely and eternally worth it. Um, I got a book, a free book here just recently from Russ and Nancy Smith. They're sitting right out here, and uh, they spoke my love language. But uh, a book, free book, they paid for it. But uh, what was interesting about this... uh, was that, let me read to you a quote from this, this book. The name of the book is Worship Matters, and it's a worship leader. I mean, this just resonated with me, and they were talking a little bit about this book. But, uh, in fact, we bought about 11 copies of this book, and we're going to pass them out to all of our, <laughs> all of the worship guys. And, and it was just, it's a phenomenal book. Uh, but Bob Coughlin has been leading worship for years, and this is what he says, one section of the book, he talks about studying doctrine and theology. He says, getting to know God is time-consuming. We live in the age of instant everything. We want a life-changing devotional in 15 minutes max. And why shouldn't God fit into the slot? We've allotted him. After all, he's God. He knows how packed our schedule is. 
We open our Bibles and get bored if nothing grips us after two paragraphs. We want everything abridged, dumbed down, and in today's lingo. So we don't have to think too much or examine our lives too closely. Given our small minds, our absolute dependence on revealed truth, and the immensity of God, how can we think there's an easy path to knowing the God we worship? There are no shortcuts, only a grace-motivated, steadfast, lifelong pursuit of the God who created and redeemed us for his glory. I love that. It takes work, but guess what? It's worth it. It's worth it. I gave you some of that worth with some of these verses. Psalm 1-2 talks about delighting in God's word. You go from duty to delight. The man that delights in God's word, he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by rivers of living water, nourishment, nurturing. His leaf will not wither. In season, he will bear fruit. Whatever he does prospers. There's prosperity in that. You delight in interacting with God, knowing God, experiencing God. And then Psalm 19.10, it tells us this. It's more to be desired than gold, much fine gold. I had a guy a number of years ago. I, I kick myself now, but it was about 25, 30 years ago, he tried to talk us into buying gold. And if you had bought gold back 25 years ago and hung on to it to this day and, and cashed it in, I would be a millionaire if I would have bought the gold that he encouraged us to buy at that time. And, uh, and don't want to buy it now because I'm afraid it's all going to drop out from under us. But maybe, maybe it'll keep going up, but it's really sky high. And so it's interesting, but he's, he's referring to God's word as, as gold, fine gold. So, okay, so I didn't buy it. I got something more valuable. God's word, that's what he's saying. And then in Psalm 119, 103, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. My wife and I, when we knew that we were gonna get married, her parents moved to Houston, she moved with them. This was back before internet and cell phones. This was during the time of telegraph. And, uh, okay, it wasn't, but it was dial, you know the dial phones? Anybody know what a dial phone is? Okay, back dial phone, and uh, it's a little bit after the uh, party lines. How many remember party lines that far back? Oh my goodness, you guys are old. <laughs> but it was back, uh, back during the old party lines, and, uh, <clears throat> but that wasn't during the party lines. Actually, we were beyond the party lines, okay? So we were, we were a little more sophisticated. We had our own, you know, at least our own phones without party lines. But it cost an arm and a leg to make a long-distance phone call. How many remember those days? And so it was snail mail that we had to wait on, and Nancy would send me these letters, and when I would get those letters, I could hardly wait. And, um, and I didn't want to read them. I just piled them up, and I, I, I came every Sunday to, to someone that would read them to me and for me and explain them to me. <laughs> that seems weird, doesn't it? No, I devoured them. I was like, I smelled them. Oh, because they had the scent of Nancy on them. I love them, and I, I mean, I, I memorized every cross, T, and dotted I. Oh, they were sweeter than honey, and, and uh, God's word is like that. That's what he's saying. The Bible is an unparalleled love letter to the people of God, and then, uh, and then there's another verse here. I put Proverbs 2, 4 through 5. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, awe and wonder, and find the knowledge of God, intimacy, awe and wonder and intimacy with God. So he's saying that Bible study is like searching for hidden treasure in your own backyard, discovering what is already yours. Can you imagine if someone said, you got $100 million in your backyard? No stone would go unturned. Believe me. And as he's saying, that's what it's like when you study God's word, hidden treasure and discovering, oh, this is, this is what he says about me? Oh my goodness, I had no idea. That's wonderful. And so what, what you discover more and more as you study God's word is that, if you, that, you, that you have the smile of God. If you have the smile of God, you can take on the frowns of this world. If you have the riches of heaven, oh my goodness, you can face anything. That's what you're gonna begin to discover in the riches of God's word. And so let me give you another kind of a practical point. So pray that God will open your eyes and increase your love for the sun. Remember, Bible study is hard work, but it is infinitely and eternally worth it. Read from a modern translation study Bible, such as ESV. There's a lot of good study Bibles out there. Attend a church that teaches it. A lot of churches don't teach the Bible. They do a lot of proof texting. Just be aware of it. 
they become more about motivation. It's more motivational talk or a lecture. You want to see Jesus and then participate in a small group that discusses it. I put on your notes, uh, write this down. I don't know if I put desiringgod.org, desiringgod.org, and go on their website and then type in, look at the book, and then go to their labs because Pastor John there will help you to walk through how to dissect scriptures. It, it, it will be a little, a little bit addicting to you as you watch it. It's like a five-minute, he'll take a verse and show you how he walks through it and dissects it. You know, I mean, it will stand out to you. It's just the way that you study, desiringgod.org, look at the book, labs, L-A-B-S. And then here's the, here's the most important thing. We're going to take communion this morning. Don't look for life lessons, but crave to get a glimpse of the Savior that can satisfy your soul, resulting in a life lived for God. Now, here's what you've got to do. You have to have an open heart and an attentive mind. You've got to know where you are. You've got to know where your heart is. Just, just go through the motions and check the box. You allow God to meet you right where you are. But you've got to know where you are. Because there's no intimacy without honesty. Would you guys agree with that? You can't have intimacy with someone unless there's honesty. So when you come before God, you have an open heart and an attentive mind. Let me show you what these guys do. Verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You know what was happening there in our text? They were disillusioned. They were despondent. They were dejected. And God, Jesus, through the scriptures, met them right where they were. He will meet you right where you are. He will meet you this morning through communion, wherever you might be, but you got to be honest, open heart, attentive mind. God, what do you want to speak to me? I'm feeling really anxious. Let him speak to you. I'm feeling really angry and bitter. I've got unforgiveness. Let him speak to you. I'm feeling despondent and despair. Let him speak to you this morning. It is applying the truth and the person and the work of Jesus Christ specific to where your heart is most restless. And you'll notice the end of the story, Luke 24, 52 through 53. We didn't read this, but this was part of the rest of Luke. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and prepare our minds and hearts for communion this morning. Father God, temptations are too frequent. Trials are too heavy. Satan is too active. Our sinful nature is too strong. Questions, doubts, and fears are too relentless. Emotions are too volatile. Hope, faith, hope, and love are too threatened to think that we can deal with these without a steady diet of your word is foolish and spiritually deadly. We pray, open our eyes and increase our love for your son Redirect our wandering hearts to their true destination and most satisfying delight, our Lord Jesus Christ, through our time in communion. Help us to remember that Bible study is hard work, but it is infinitely and eternally worth it as we grow in awe and intimacy with you. And may we learn how to saturate our lives with your word through our weekend services and our life groups and our personal devotions with an open heart and an attentive mind craving to get a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy our souls so that we can better live for your glory in all circumstances. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. As you